0: Amen. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. If you would, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5. we be back in 1 Timothy chapter 5 this morning. Looking at just two verses, verses 17 and 18. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Verse 17, hear the word of the Lord. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. And so, Father, once again, we pray and ask for Your help as we think through, Lord, what it means for men to labor in preaching, and teaching. Help us to think biblically, to think clearly, and we pray that You would exalt Your Son in this time. We pray it in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Well, this is our third week in First Timothy chapter 5, and we have seen in this chapter, Uh, Paul's instructions to the church uh, with respect to how members of the church are to interact and relate to one another uh, with regard to differing age, uh, differing gender, and even different marital statuses. And we saw last week uh, that the church is obligated to show honor uh, to widows, those who Paul calls true widows, those who are left all alone and who have demonstrated exemplary moral character And he says to honor them not only by showing them respect and having a heart posture of honor toward them, but also providing for their physical needs. And in our text this morning, Paul introduces another group of people to the church to whom they are to show special honor, namely the elders who rule well. And so we are going to spend uh, two weeks in this passage, this section on elders Next week, Lord willing, I will come back to this uh, text and do a much more thorough teaching on what we might call a biblical eldership. We'll take a much more extensive look at the apostolic framework for how elders and elderships are to be formulated and how pastors are to function in the local church. And when I say eldership, I just simply mean a group or a board, or a team of men who have been ordained to the office of overseer and how they function together to lead and rule in their respective local churches who have called them. And when we ask the very important questions, how should a pastoral leadership be developed and structured? And how should it function in the church? 1 Timothy five seventeen to 25 is a watershed text for answering those questions. and So we'll spend a couple of weeks here. Uh, Before that, however, John Mark and I thought that it would be profitable to take a week and, and focus on verses 17 and 18 and really hone in on the phrase, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And it's clear from verse 17 that among the elders at Ephesus, uh, there were some men who were recognized by the church and by the rest of the elders as having a particular giftedness in ministering the Word of God to the flock, especially in public settings. Uh, notice, however, Paul does not say that they are a different class of elders. Right? He goes on to say in verse 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Uh, They were elders from among the elders. They were a group from among the group uh, who were marked out as having a peculiar ability and the necessary gifts able to minister the Word of God to build up the body of Christ. Uh, They were marked out as having the necessary ability to study, to understand, and to minister the Word of God so that the church would receive the Word of God and be edified and be built up into the head which is Christ. And to grow in sound doctrine. And while all elders, as we saw back in chapter 3, must be able to teach as part of their qualifications for even being an overseer, uh, those who labor in preaching and teaching will have exhibited a spirit-endowed giftedness, a spirit-empowered grace to minister the Word of God. To understand the Word of God and to edify the body and to rule or govern the people of God through the ministry of the Word of God. And we see these uh, men as recognized as spiritual gifts in Romans twelve six 6-8. Uh, where the Apostle says this, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. But then he says this, the one who teaches in his teaching. And then he says, the one who exhorts in his exhortation. And So teaching and exhortation, what we call a preaching, are said to be spiritual gifts. Supernatural endowments of grace given from the Holy Spirit to build up the body of Christ. And according to Paul, these men are to be considered worthy of financial remuneration. Uh, Why? Well, you know, when you think about it, not only because of the position they hold, but because of the time that is required and the kind of lifestyle that is required uh, to labor to be able to put forward the Word of God in an appropriate, biblically healthy way that the church is built up as they hear it. And not only that, but because of the primacy that God has put on the Word of God in the health of the church. These things show us how seriously God takes the handling of His Word. And specifically, the public proclamation of the Word of God. The local church will be ongoingly governed. The, the apostles understood this. Paul understood that as he died and as the rest of the apostles died and as the canon of Scripture was closed in the apostolic age, that the church would ongoingly be governed by elders, elderships, who would rule the church as they stand on the apostolic word. There would be no more revelation. There would be no more Apostles, There would be elders who would stand on their word and rule the church, govern the church until the Lord Jesus returns for her. And just as an aside, there is a difference in biblical preaching and biblical teaching. Uh, Biblical preaching will always include teaching. Uh, There will always be that element. Uh, You can't have real preaching without teaching, but you can have real biblical teaching that is not considered uh, preaching. Uh, Biblical preaching happens when a man brings the truths of Scriptures to bear upon the consciences of the hearers. He brings the truths of God from the text, revealing the mind of the Spirit from the text orally and brings that to bear upon the listeners so that they are cut to the heart. And they're encouraged and they're built up and they're conformed into the image of Christ. Uh, Biblical preaching will usually involve not only an explanation of the text, but it will involve application of the text. How the Word of God applies to the hearer's lives. It will involve illustrations of the text so that the hearer can receive the truth clearly and understand it and apply it to his or her own life. It goes beyond simply explaining the meaning of the text, but it brings the demand of that text upon all who hear. And by the Spirit's power, the believers are sanctified and conformed and the lost are converted as they come up under the conviction of the Word. Biblical teaching, on the other hand, though it may include times of exhortation in application, in in illustration, it may at times just be simply making plain the meaning of The text. And so there is a difference here. And at Ephesus, there were some men among the the elders who were laboring, Paul says, in preaching and in teaching. Uh, They spent the abundant portion of their time to the activities of preaching and teaching. And there were more than one, apparently. He says those who labor in preaching and teaching. So there were at least two. Possibly more men who could be categorized as those who labor in preaching and teaching. And therefore, they would be worthy of financial compensation. And we can rightly deduce uh, that there was more teaching going on than just one time on Sunday. If more than one man was laboring in preaching and teaching, there had to have been more opportunities to do that than just once a week on the Lord's Day. And so we need to think about this Uh, accurately, right? while laboring and preaching and teaching absolutely requires and involves Sunday proclamation of the Word, it also involves the shepherds of the church ministering the Word of God in a variety of settings. Uh, Other opportunities. Other places of teaching that happen. Uh, What we might call pastoral counseling. Right. Sometimes we're three or four hours in the counseling room where a, where a pastor is laboring with the Word. Laboring to help a wounded sheep see the way forward. And it is at times exhausting. There's personal teaching. There's, there's group setting teaching. There's other kinds of teaching settings. Uh, perhaps the man could be called at certain seasons to go to other places, to other countries, to other churches uh, to minister and edify The Word. And so this text is not saying that the only person worthy of double honor, uh, which includes financial compensation, is the senior pastor who does the majority of the Sunday morning uh, preaching. But it also reaches into the other elders who give the majority of their time to studying, understanding, and ministering the Word of God to the people of God in a variety of settings. And so I recognize uh, that this sermon may feel a little odd uh, because most of you will never be an elder who labors in preaching and teaching. However, all of you, all of you, every single person in this room uh, are commanded to commit to a local church and submit to the leadership of elders and and to... uh, compensate or, or give to the church which would pay those pastors that you submit to. You are called to place yourself, and if you're the head of a home, your family under the teaching and preaching ministry of just a few men. Just a few men. And you are called to trust them. To receive their Word with joy and eagerness. And so this sermon is actually vitally relevant for every single person in this room. Think about this, guys. Under normal circumstances, you will week after week as the years and the decades go on, spend hours and hours and hours under the teaching and preaching ministry of just a few men in your lives. Uh, You will bring the, the most difficult situations that come up in your lives to just a few men and receive their pastoral counsel on those situations, you will will give of your hard-earned money to compensate and support the lives and the families of just a small portion of men over the course of your entire life. This is vitally important for you to think through. Uh, Don't you think it's quite important to think through what it means for a man to labor in preaching and teaching. Uh, Should you have thought through this so that you have some biblical categories for what your preaching and teaching pastors are supposed to be doing all the time? Doing with their week. Doing with their jobs. Should you have any convictions over those things? Or do you not care what they do as long as they organize a church service and have a sermon on Sunday morning? Should you have some categories for how they ought to be developing morally, developing theologically, developing spiritually and physically and intellectually, so that you can confidently, as the Bereans did, with joy and with eagerness receive the preaching of the Word. Should you care or have categories about how your pastors actually produce the sermons and the teachings they give you? Or does it not matter? Uh, you know, uh, what, what's considered laboring? Does it matter if they plagiarize? I think most of us would say, yeah, that matters. But what about this one? What if they get sermons from other people with permission? Do you care about that? Is, is that laboring in teaching and in preaching? What about using artificial intelligence to create their sermons? Is that laboring in preaching and in Teaching. What if, what if they just have a base of 25 or 30 sermons that they just kind of repackage and change some things and then every three years just preach the same 25 or 30 sermons? Is that laboring in preaching and in teaching? Or do you want your pastors to bring forth fresh treasure every week from the Word of God to feed you, to give to you? Vodibachum Bakam has that book, you know, what, what a Man Must Be If He Wants to Marry My Daughter. Uh, and just as it's irresponsible not to have convictions about what a young man must be before we give our daughters to him to marry, it's irresponsible not to have some convictions about what a man must be before we submit ourselves and our families to his preaching and teaching ministry. Week in and week out. Year in and year out. Decade in and decade out. These things are significant and we should have thought through them. And so, uh, you know, while a sermon like this feels like it should be maybe delivered at a pastor conference, pastor's conference, I want you to feel the weight of this. Because I feel the weight of this. I feel the weight of this. And, and, and I can assure you... Uh, John Mark and I feel the weight of this, and I I don't want this to be very personal. I'm going to purposefully not say too many personal things because this isn't about me. It's not about Pastor John Mark. I want our minds on the text. Uh, But I want to say on behalf of both of us that we are very grateful to you, church. Uh, We are grateful for how you care for us. We are grateful for how you allow us to pursue theological education. How you allow us to to pray, to labor in in preaching and teaching, to try our best to do what this text says. We are very grateful for that. And so we need to be asking ourselves and asking one another, are we worthy of the wage? Are we worthy to receive the wages because we are laboring for this church in preaching and in teaching? And that's what you should be asking of your pastors, whether they are in this church or in any other church that you join for the rest of your lives. Are they laboring to develop morally? Physically? Spiritually? Intellectually? Emotionally? Are they keeping a close watch on their lives and on their doctrine? Have you ever thought about that text? We were in it a few weeks ago. He goes on to say, uh, and by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Your hearers. Think about that verse. The the moral and theological health of the minister is directly related to the moral and theological health and the the salvific state of the hearers. This is vitally important. This is vitally important. And nearly everything I say this morning, brothers and sisters, will be applicable in principle to every one of you. Uh, you know, when you think about First Timothy, uh, there's a reason we call First and Second Timothy and Titus the pastoral epistles. They were written to a pastor. And they include primarily pastoral instructions for the church. So when we get to them in our reading, do we just say, well, none of this applies to me, so it's useless. No, of course not. We apply the Word of God to our lives knowing that it is living and active for all of us. And so I have prayed and asked the Spirit to show you as I say certain things that may be directly applicable to preaching and teaching ministers to show you how they apply to your own lives and how you can use them to grow in the Lord. And I trust that He will do that. Uh, with our remaining time, and Pastor John Mark said I had the 2.15, so we've got plenty of time. I want to ask two questions and then answer those two questions. I want to ask, what does it mean for a pastor to labor in preaching and in teaching? And then I want to ask, how does a pastor who labors in preaching and teaching cultivate the necessary frame for a long-standing, biblically effective preaching and teaching ministry? and So the first question, what does it mean for a pastor to labor in preaching and teaching? And so while these gifts of exhortation and, and teaching are supernatural gifts, they are graces given by the Spirit, however, they must be labored in. They must be cultivated. A man doesn't come pre downloaded with 3,000 sermons to preach for the rest of his life. Uh, He doesn't get converted and at the moment of conversion receive a thorough grasp of all the Word of God. He He doesn't get saved and then just have the words in his mouth to minister to people and edify them from the moment of conversion as if they're just there. He must labor. He must work to know and to minister the Word of God. He doesn't all of a sudden become an an expert expositor. This requires cultivation. It requires training. The act of preaching and teaching itself is a work of labor. It's incarnational. There is a real man behind a real pulpit with a real Bible, ministering to real people that have real problems speaking real applications from the peop- for the people of God. In the pastoral counseling room, there's a real man behind the desk or sitting on a couch with real herding sheep, possibly weeping with them, listening to them, real trauma, real problems, real sin, ministering the Word of God, helping them to heal and to grow and to repent. Wherever preaching and teaching happens, There is labor happening. And elders who labor in preaching and teaching are going to spend the majority of their times throughout the week with their Bible ministering to the people of God from the Word. That's what it means. Acts 20. 20, Paul says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. This could involve what we call city groups, community groups, pastoral visits. Again, counseling. It could stretch into phone calls. Any time that the man of God is ministering the Word of God to the people of God, there's labor happening if it's done rightly. And if a man is to effectively preach the Word and effectively teach the Word so that the people of God grow in their knowledge of Christ and grow into the conformity to the commandments of Christ, The labor must happen well before the hour of preaching or teaching. Uh, The labor must start well before He opens His mouth. If He is to have something good to say. So what goes into a good sermon? Have you ever thought about this? Not a sermon that you just particularly liked or that you didn't like, uh, but a sermon uh, that is faithful to the text of Scripture it's clear and easily understandable, It is convicting, it stirs up the affections for Christ, it exalts God, it accomplishes its Spirit-ordained means. What goes into that? How does a man bring that type of sermon into the pulpit and then minister that to the people of God? Well, I know most of you know this, but I'm going to go ahead and just say it anyway. A whole lot more goes into it than a man walking up the platform and getting behind a pulpit and opening his Bible and just starting to talk. There's labor that goes into preparing the sermon to minister to the people of God. Uh, The sermon preparation process is a process of labor that starts well before the public setting. Uh, Flip over, if you would, a page uh, to 2 Timothy 2.15. the Apostle says again to Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. And listen, a worker, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the Word of truth. Rightly handling the Word of God requires work. Notice the intentionality that Paul calls Timothy to for this cause. Do your best. Other translations say, be diligent. Other translations say, work hard. Uh, There must be an intentional, assertive effort on behalf of the man of God to make sure that he can stand confidently. That what he is saying to you, he can say, thus says the Lord. so that He avoids error and brings upon Him reason to be ashamed because He has mishandled the Word of Truth. This requires prayerfully laboring over a text. Thinking about the grammar and the structure of the text. Understanding the text within its larger context. Understanding the text in in terms of the scope of the whole. How does this fit in the whole canon? Uh, consulting other commentaries, listening to other sermons, other Spirit-filled men who have taught and ministered from that text. Speaking of praying over a text, uh, listen to Charles Spurgeon in his lecture on the preacher's private prayer. He says this, texts will often refuse to reveal their treasures till you open them with the key of prayer. How wonderfully... Were the books opened to Daniel when he was in supplication. How much Peter learned on the housetop. The closet is the best study. The commentators are good instructors, but the author himself is far better. And prayer makes a direct appeal to him and enlists him in our cause. It is a great thing to pray oneself into the spirit and marrow of a text. And that's just the beginning. Uh, Understanding the Spirit-intended meaning of the passage is just the beginning of the work. Uh, There's labor in actually creating the sermon to deliver to the people. Or the teaching to deliver to the people. Thinking about how to communicate the spiritual truths most effectively at hand. And he must do this with his specific congregation in his mind. Not only must He exegete the text, He must exegete the congregation. What, what, do we think, what, is, what are the people thinking about? What's going on in the world? What problems do we have in the body? Where are people suffering? Uh, what are the specific nuances of this people? What terms and concepts can be assumed and what needs to be explained? Thinking of all these things and then laboring over the sermon and prayer before and after the sermon was preached. After the teaching was taught. So that the Spirit will come and bless the Word of God and conform those who heard it to the Word of God. We are powerless, brothers and sisters, unless the Spirit of God comes and works through the Word. We are doing a supernatural thing that only God can work through to change people. And look at the Scripture Paul uses to support the fact that these men should be compensated financially. Uh, he, he says, uh, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain.'" You know, that's from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. Just as the Old Testament law forbade people from putting a muzzle on the ox so that it wouldn't eat any of the fruit that it was threshing out, he's using that to say, don't muzzle the ministers. Don't receive the Word of God from them so that you're blessed while keeping from them the things that they need to actually do that well while keeping from them the material possessions that they need to live on. He says, give them their wage. They're worthy of it. They're working. They're laboring. Consider this labor. Consider studying the text, preaching the text, ministering the text, ministering the Word. Consider that labor and compensate them accordingly. The Puritans would say that a man's sermon preparation Starts long before he sits down with a text for the week and begins to prepare the sermon or the teaching. Uh, His sermon teaching, or his sermon or teaching preparation, involves his regular reading of Scripture so that he's systematically going through the Word of God regularly and knows the whole counsel of God. He's familiar with the stories, with the themes, with the types, with the shadows, with the fulfillments. His general reading in areas such as systematic theology, apologetics, biography, and I think we could go even further and say that the man's whole life is sermon preparation. His whole life, his diet, his sleep, his physical frame, his relationship to his family, his emotional state, all of these things affect the man's ministry and it affects the congregation's receiving of that ministry. All of these things are important. And I'll just say it, because many churches don't understand these things, they run their pastors into the ground. And and many of them leave the ministry or become disqualified. Men who started well because they get bitter, and they get cynical, and they get angry because they neglect the things that God has called them to. And one of the reasons why we chose to do a sermon like this is because we think it is very important for the people of God to think biblically about these things. To think biblically about these things. And it's very important for a church to think biblically about compensating its pastors. And when we think biblically about what laboring and preaching and teaching entails, we see that it normally requires the majority of a man's effort and intentionality and time and all that he has, his energy, his effort. Paul says a laborer is, deserves his wages. Uh, many scholars, and I agree, believe that Paul is quoting from Jesus from Luke 10 when he sends out the 72. And he says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. So whatever is meant by double honor, it's double honor. It's more than honor. And it's clear that double honor uh, requires or or includes um, financial remuneration. And it intensifies it even more for those who labor in preaching and teaching. Notice he says, especially. All the elders who rule well are worthy of double honor, but especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Especially consider those worthy of double honor. And again, this involves clearly an attitude of honor, a respect and all of these things, but financial honor as well. And we clearly see that from verse 18. Guys, whether you're here or somewhere else the rest of your lives, you as the people of God in your church, you want your primary preaching and teaching pastors to be so unconcerned with money that, that they can give their time, their energy, their effort, to laboring in preaching and teaching. That will bless you. That will bless your family. That is God's one of God's means of preserving you to the end. Question number two. How does a pastor who labors in preaching and teaching cultivate the necessary frame a long standing biblically effective preaching and teaching ministry notice i said long standing and i said biblically effective we got to let the bible define what a successful and effective ministry is so how does a man what does a man do to cultivate that necessary frame have you ever wondered Uh, What goes into the pastor's ability to minister the Word of God? Uh, You know, uh, whether from the pulpit or at a city group or whether you pull him aside in a private conversation and you ask him something that he did not know you were going to ask that's totally off the wall and he's able to give you a sufficient answer. How does he get to that point? How, How does he get to the place to where you can call him on the phone with a problem and he's able to minister to you in that moment from the Word of God? Is it just that he's sharp intellectually? Is it just that he went to seminary once upon a time? What enables a pastor to year in and year out minister the Word of God effectively before the people of God so that they are blessed and sanctified? So that they feel confident that what comes out of his mouth is from the Spirit. From the testimony of the Spirit. Albert Martin says this, effective pastoral preaching will be realized in direct proportion to the health and vigor of the entire redeemed humanity of the preacher. Effective preaching will be realized in direct proportion to the health and vigor of the entire redeemed humanity of the preacher. Not just that the man is smart. Uh, Not just that the man received the Master of Divinity years prior and, and took a class in Greek and Hebrew. Not just that the man is even exemplary in his moral character, as important as that is. The pastor must labor to bring his entire redeemed humanity, every facet of his being, into alignment with God's revealed will. And he must do that constantly, daily, over and over, to submit himself and every component of his being to God. Constantly. And We can't be exhaustive here, but I want to highlight a few areas of which the pastor, and I will say again, this will be applicable to all of you in your calling. How does he cultivate an ongoing development if he is going to have that long-standing, biblically successful preaching and teaching ministry? Uh, and I want to just give us five of these. He must have an ongoing moral cultivation. There must be an ongoing moral cultivation. 1 Timothy 4.7 Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. And then later in 1 Timothy 4.16 Keep a close watch on yourself. What could undermine a pastor's ministry more than moral failure? Nothing. Nothing. What brings reproach on the church of Christ more than moral failure? And specifically, the moral failures of its leaders? What causes confusion and hurt to the people of God more than their pastor that they trusted falling morally? What hinders his preaching more than a moral backsliding where his heart drifts away from God, drifts away from his wife and his children, and drifts toward the things of this world? If the man is going to have a long-standing, biblically effective ministry, he must labor to cultivate moral character, spiritual character, godly character, and what are some practical ways he can do this? Well, he must prioritize his private devotion with God. That seems simple, doesn't it? He, he must prioritize his private devotion with God. His, his communion with the living Christ. Daily reading in the Scripture. Daily meditating on Scripture. Daily prayer. Confession of sin. A fresh cleansing of the blood of Christ. Prayer for himself and for his character. Memorizing passages of Scripture to fight the enemy when he comes. Times of extended prayer where he can slip away and put away his phone and just labor in prayer and commune with his God. And let God refresh his soul before he stands before the people in public. And I know for myself, the best way to gauge my spiritual health is to look at my private devotions. And there's usually a one-to-one correspondence between the two. I was telling some brothers at Citigroup the other day that the central battle for my life, my entire Christian life, has been the battle for private devotion with Christ. And when there is victory and success in that battle, there's usually victory and success in all the other areas of my life. And when there is failure in that area, there is failure in every other area of my life. It's vitally important. He must prioritize cultivating a loving, intimate, satisfying relationship with his wife. How many pastoral falls come in the realm of adultery? So many. And I can't help but think that, that once a man's heart drifts from his God, the next person from whom his heart will drift from will be his wife. will be his wife. The man must prioritize cultivating a growing relationship to Christ and a growing relationship to his wife. And we could say a whole lot more, but I'm going to press us forward. He must have an ongoing theological cultivation. Uh, 2 Timothy 2.15, again, the NASB says this, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God and as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, Accurately handling the Word of Truth. Regular, systematic reading of Scripture so that he's comfortable with his Bible. He's comfortable with the things of God. He doesn't have to be an expert in every category, but he needs to be comfortable with the whole counsel of God. Systematic theology. You know, how many times in 1 Timothy have we seen Paul put the emphasis on healthy doctrine? Sound doctrine uh, he must labor uh, to, to labor in preaching and teachers teaching requires laboring to know what the whole Bible teaches about the most important doctrines of God: the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the person of Christ, justification, sanctification, the church. And these things require study, they require reading, they require time. Uh, seminary education and ongoing theological training that challenges the intellect and allows that man to not just be stale, but to ongoingly be able to bring forth, like I said, fresh treasure from the Word and to help him develop categories so that he's well rounded, so that he's just not in one topic all the time or four or five topics, just bouncing back between a few topics, but well rounded in His ministry. There must be an ongoing emotional cultivation. You might think that sounds kind of strange, uh, but isn't it so easy to tell when a person's emotional state is unhealthy? It is. Uh, Whenever a person is bitter or resentful or angry, or even broken-spirited or discouraged, it so often bleeds out into how the person looks, how they talk, how they behave, and it influences everything about their lives. And in the same way, if a pastor is not healthy emotionally, the hearers are going to feel that when they sit under his ministry. And if he's cynical and he's angry, he's going to be firing shots from the pulpit like a loose cannon. If he's broken-spirited and discouraged, uh, perhaps he will uh, gravitate toward topics that, that he's going through or minister to his own soul. Or perhaps he will be tempted to be overly personal and overly vulnerable from the pulpit in counseling his own heart while he's speaking. Uh, a man must maintain emotional health so that the people of God are not affected by his his emotional state that is negative. He needs to regularly date his wife. He needs time to put away his work, put away his phone, and play with his children. He needs opportunities for rest and opportunities to enjoy God's gifts. And you know what he needs? He needs genuine friendships within the body of Christ. Genuine friendships where he can receive love from the body of Christ and enjoy profitable conversation with the saints of God. He needs a physical cultivation. Number four, he needs an ongoing physical cultivation. You know, when the time has come for preaching and teaching on Sunday morning, uh, perhaps the most important aspect of the man's frame is his physical frame. Uh, There's not a whole lot else he can do When he gets up into the pulpit or gets behind somewhere to teach or gets in a room with someone to counsel them, his physical frame is vital. How can a man preach with vigor and awareness if his stomach is in knots from eating poorly all weekend? How, How can a man bring to bear the truths of God with conviction if he's exhausted from staying up late all week? Uh, what, What about providing stumbling blocks through His physical appearance to the people so that even if what He's saying is good, they can't receive it because He's causing them to be offended with how He appears to them? These things are vital. One of the primary ways that a man can cultivate and maintain mental and emotional health is through paying close attention to his diet and to regular physical exercise. Uh, The mental and emotional strains of pastoral ministry, and you make your own application to your calling, will drive the man into depression unless he deals with them biblically and well. And burnout will take place if he does not take great pains to care for his physical state. And you know, what are the temptations when life gets difficult and we get wore down? The temptation is to sleep later, eat unhealthier, scroll longer, drink more coffee, and gravitate toward unhealth. And that drives us into unhealth, which disqualifies us in many ways from being able to effectively minister to the body of Christ. And I trust you all know what I'm talking about when I say this, but there have been times when I have been clouded mentally or discouraged, you know, emotionally. and You know how you think about the same thing over and over until you bring a headache upon yourself. Some of the best medicine in those moments is just to start running. And get a good sweat and allow the body its God-given mechanism to release stress and release tension and when that's over, it's like my whole view of life is colored again. It's vitally important. It's really interesting that Paul tells Timothy later on in this passage. He says, no longer drink only water, but take a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. And so possibly, we'll get into this in a couple of weeks, possibly because of Timothy's desire to be pure, we don't know, Uh, But it seems that for whatever reason, Timothy was a teetotaler. He was abstaining from alcohol at every level. And Paul is saying, look, Timothy, you have to be in tip-top shape to minister the Word of God to the people. Your physical frame cannot be suffering so that the people of God are hindered from your physical suffering. And he says, whatever is necessary, as long as it's responsible from God, take that. Use that to to help yourself. Be well. Be physically well. If there are responsible medicinal options for you to deal with your frequent ailments, avail yourself of them. Not just for your sake, but for their sake. For the people's sake. For the sake of the Word. And what is required if the pastor is going to have these cultivations in, in any meaningful way? Well, two things. Time. And discipline. Time is required. And discipline is required. And here is where I think a lot of good men who start well, they start qualified, but they go awry uh, Because uh, whether it's because they don't understand these things or they just are simply too lazy and undisciplined to labor at these levels, or whether it's because their church loads them down with a bunch of stuff that God has not called and regulated for them to be doing so that when they stand before uh, the people of God, uh, it it is evident that they have not cultivated and not grown in these areas and their ministry suffers. You know, we say a lot here, um, if you're going to pray for your pastors, pray for their godliness. There's another thing I would ask you to pray for. Pray for our discipline. Godliness, as we saw back in chapter four, requires discipline. Train yourself. Discipline yourself for godliness. Discipline yourself for godliness. And he says to Timothy in chapter five, verse fifteen: Practice these things. Or in chapter four, fifteen: Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. Why? So that all may see your progress. Whatever churches you decide to join in your life, you will be blessed when your preaching and teaching pastors understand the necessity of and have the freedom to immerse themselves. Think about that. Diving into the water. Immersing themselves in the things of God so that when they stand before you publicly to minister the Word of God, it will be evident to everybody there's progress. God is working through that man. God's power is at work. We we can receive what He is saying from the mouth of God. Yes, you test it. No, you don't just receive everything as if Jesus were here speaking to you. That's not what we're saying. But it's evident because He's immersed Himself in the things of God with His time that progress is so so normal so so obvious to everyone that you grow in confidence and you receive the ministry of the word of god and you recognize that it is god's one of god's primary ways of saving your soul amen and so just to conclude christ has given men to the church as gifts for the building up of the body of Christ. But let me say it very clearly as if any of you didn't know, these men are not perfect. And if they stand before you long enough, you will notice their flaws. And you will notice their defects. And there will be things you don't particularly like or care for. They are not your Savior. They need a Savior. And it's the same Savior we all need. And Peter calls Him the chief shepherd. The true pastor of the church. The Lord Jesus Christ. And so I would encourage you, brothers and sisters, as you pray for your teaching and preaching pastors, as you submit to their leadership, as you receive the Word and and are growing in confidence in their ministry, look to Christ alone for salvation. Look to Christ alone for the supply of the Spirit that you need to change. And if you do that, you will grow and you will be persevered to heaven. So let me transition us to the table with those thoughts. Uh, This table is for the people of God. Those who have received Christ by faith and turned from their sins and put their hope and trust in Him. And it is for those who have Uh, been buried with Christ in baptism and raised up again for the newness of life. And so if you've put your hope and trust in Christ and you've been baptized, uh, we would love for you to come and take of the supper with us. And if not, uh, please contemplate these things that I have talked about today. There also are some prayers in your bulletin you can pray. Brothers and sisters, take a few moments there uh, to look beyond your under-shepherds and to look to Jesus Christ, uh, commune with Him, talk to Him, confess sin to Him if you need to, and when you are ready, redder, uh, sorry, ready, sorry, come up to the, the table and receive the elements, and we'll take it together. Amen. Let's pray. Oh gracious Father, uh, we just tremble. We tremble at Your Word, Lord but at the same time that we tremble, we are grateful that You have not placed upon us the burden to save ourselves. We could never do that. That Your Son has come and taken our burden and laid down His life for sinners. And so I pray, Lord, that we would look to Christ alone. And no matter how strong or weak our under-shepherds are, You are the great Chief Shepherd. And we long for Your appearing. And so bless us, Lord, now as we take this supper. I pray that we would commune with You and grow in grace. And that You would bless our communion with one another as well. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.